Now it came to pass after these things, chapter 48, verse 1, that Joseph was told, indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. Now that land was the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, the promised land, where the nation of Israel is to, to this day right now by God's design and miracles restored as a nation. And again, these events are 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years before the time of Christ, these events that involve this. Now Jacob says at the end of his life, on his deathbed, he goes back to his conversion or his encounter with the Lord because it was in Luz, which is also Bethel, when back in Genesis, earlier on in Genesis, he was fleeing from his brother Esau, who was threatening to kill him, that God appeared to him in the dream. And he had the dream with the rock as a pillow, and he had the dream where the angels were ascending, descending on the ladder, known to us as Jacob's ladder, referred to by Jesus in the New Testament as well, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the ascension of of God coming to earth and revealing himself and bringing people up to heaven through faith in him. And he goes back to that. That's why it's so important we have a flashpoint for our faith when we've made that commitment to Christ. It's really important. Because a lot of people say they believe in God. A lot of people say, oh, I believe in God. I, 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 I gave my life to Christ or whatever. But it's really important that we have a flashpoint. There's a beginning of the journey. I mean, we pass from death to life. There's a point in our life where we become a new creation through faith in Jesus Christ. We, Jesus said we must be born again. And so, like my wife can look at December 7th, 1987, as the night that she made a public declaration in response to Jesus Christ. I look at my life in the spring of 1987, reading through the Gospel of John at my father's house in Vista, that God was working, listening to K-Wave. But for me, I really go back to John chapter 19 when I read it is finished, where Jesus said it is finished. And I really believe that's where I was born again because it just really all made sense to me that I'm saved by grace. That's where I understood grace. It's important. It's important on our deathbed as we're about to transcend dimensions from time to eternity that we can look back and say, this is, you know, God has been faithful to me since I made that decision in the spring of 87 to give my life to him. And he said, you travel the world for yourself. I want you to travel the world for me. Because that's what God spoke to me at that time through John 19. It's important. Now, we may not know the exact, exact date, but we should have a general sense of the season. And some of us were raised in going to church. Like Timothy was raised in the scriptures, but still there's a point where Timothy had a conversion where he committed his life to Christ in the book of Acts. And that's important. We don't want a, a general, ambiguous faith. We need a deliberate faith where we've given our lives to Christ. Because when we're about to transcend dimensions and stand before the Lord, we don't want to be fuzzy or uncertain about who we believed in and where we're going. Paul the Apostle, at the end of his life, said, I know who I believed in, and I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day. That's important. So we draw this principle from Jacob that as he's pulling himself up out of bed, so he's not just assisted living, or assisted living plus, or memory care. He's bedridden. He's in a bed. Now, this is the end of the journey in, for a lot of people in being taken care of in assisted uh, elderly home situations. 
Broder could remember when we did all those facilities back in the day 10 years ago and went to all those different Christmas, uh, Christmas times singing Christmas carols, our youth group. And I remember going to certain rooms where people were definitively absolutely in a bed. Fred, of course, your dad ended his journey in a bed. We, we know that. And so we can picture leaning up. You've, you lose so many freedoms down the stretch. And as I said, that last freedom is it, once you lose the freedom of going to the bathroom on your own, you're just totally, totally dependent on other people. And it can be, it's obviously very humbling, but if that's how God humbles you, the final sealing of the fruit for eternity, then embrace it in Jesus' name because he resists the proud. So however that ending goes, know through faith in Jesus Christ, it's part of his plan, and humility and love and forgiveness will all be working really well for you on that day. But he leans up on his bed. That tells us a lot about the context of what's going on here. And as he leans up on his bed and he looks at Joseph, his favorite son, he says, God appeared to me in Luz. God Almighty appeared to me. And he said he would be with me. And he has been with me. And he said he'd give me the land in multitudes. And he has. Isn't this amazing? Abraham had one son, the son of promise, or according to the promises, to inherit the land, Isaac, the son of promise. And now it's 70 people. They're a tribe, they're a family business, if you will. And he raises himself in the bed. And he says, God appeared to me. I hope that when we're on our last day that we can raise up in the bed to anyone near us and say, you know, God appeared to me when I was reading the Gospel of John. You ever read the Gospel of John, young lady? Young man, you ever read the Gospel of John? Like, that's, that's the context. And if this isn't applicable, I don't know what is applicable. Because if we live long enough, every one of us will be in this exact same place. It's like being afraid of, of water. People tell me, I was so afraid I almost drowned in three-foot surf. I'm embarrassed by it. Don't be embarrassed by it. Everyone's afraid of the ocean at some point. It might be three feet, it might be 10 feet, it might be 30 feet or 60 feet. The ocean is meant to scare you. So don't be embarrassed by being afraid of the ocean. And don't be embarrassed about being afraid to, to face that day of the day of the Lord in a, in a healthy way. We're all going to, you know, have that last moment. And if we live long enough, we will lose all those freedoms. Driving, meal selection, restaurant choices. We're going to lose all those things if you live long enough. And it's not to be feared, but to realize it's all part of the plan if you make it that far. You know, people always remember people that die young, right? James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, Jimi Hendrix. Elvis Presley, reasonably young, right? People don't like pictures of old people dying because we don't like to think about it. But if we live long enough, this is us. And you don't need to be afraid of that. But you say, all right, well, what am I going to learn from Jacob? Well, he sits up on his bed and he testifies of God's faithfulness to reveal himself to him. For by grace you've been saved, that through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. No one seeks after the Lord, no, not one. But we seek him because he died for us. While we're yet enemies, Christ died for us to reconcile us to the Father. So our hope and confidence when we lean up on that last day is not some great deed we did in the name of religion, but a faith that we put in Jesus Christ, the great Savior, who saves us through relationship by his blood on the cross. That's our lose. That place, God is with us. Bethel, because lose changed its name to Bethel by Jacob's confession. Dying a very clear picture, even if you're fuzzy, of how it all began. Because Jesus is what? He's the author and finisher of our faith. And this is the finishing 
of Jacob's faith. I love it. He's testifying to his son, God's faithfulness. He's testifying to his grandsons, God's faithfulness. And that he's fuzzing the moment is revealed in the next passage. Verse 5. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring, whom you beget after them, shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Padam, that would be Syria, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way. That would be, of course, Joseph's mother. And when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Please bring them to me and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see them. Then Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact God has shown me your offspring. I love this. This is faith. This is fuzzy. This is the human experience. Joseph came in the room in verse 1, and he had the sons of Manasseh and Ephraim, and he sat up and he proclaimed his faith. Then he says, your sons are my sons, which is interesting, right? Like, often, like, grandparents, you know, they, they, they want to clean their grandkids, right? Like, Clementine, my granddaughter, was here this last weekend from Colorado, and she really likes me, and that's very special to me. I have found favor in her sight, and she clings to me, and she didn't want to let go of me at John Wayne Airport, and that will make you cry. You know, like, don't look back, but I still look back. And the pain of saying goodbye to your grandkids getting on a plane, as much as that hurts, the joy of them arriving on a plane, you're willing to take the pain to have the joy that precedes it. It's like your adult children when they move away. It's very sad when they get on a plane and fly away and you don't see your adult children. And the joy when they come visit you is so joyful when you haven't seen him for a long time, that you're willing to take the pain to have the joy. But for some reason, at this point in my journey, I think it's magnified with grandkids. Like, I mean, <laughs> I think it's magnified with grandkids. I remember what Pastor Chuck said to me. I said, Chuck, what do you think about Brian Broderson, his son-in-law moving to England? And he goes, Brian and Chuck can go. They just need to leave the grandkids. He said it to me like in 1996. I was like, what kind of a statement is that? You know, like leave the, Chuck's all, oh, they can go. Just leave Charlo. You know, and I just didn't understand it. But now, like, you know, 25 years later, I'm like, ah, I understand what Chuck would say. Hey, the adult kids, they can go. Cheryl, Brian, they can go. The grandkids need to stay. And that's what Chuck said to me. I'm an eyewitness. He said that to me personally so many decades ago. I'm like, ah, oh, I get it. Yeah. So they're so special. And then they're in the room, but he can't see. And, you know, my dad has really sharp moments, and he gets a little fuzzy. And you with elderly parents in the, can understand this. And then my father-in-law has sharp moments where he's cognitively in the moment, but then he gets really fuzzy and jumps around, and you kind of steer the direction to get back to where here we are now in Huntington Beach kind of a thing. Well, in this story, Jacob can't see. So he's, it's, but his senses would be heightened because obviously you, you gain you use the other senses more when you lose certain senses. Now, now who, who's this with you? Now, wait a minute. He just said they're, they're mine. Then he's like, now, now who's this? That's, that's, yeah. I would never notice that before, but I notice that now. 
Like it's, it's sharp and then it gets fuzzy. But he can't see clearly anyways. He, you know, we don't know what kind of limited sight he had. But, you know, he would have known these grandkids. But it's like it's all, it can go a little fuzzy. But he can, he's telling you who appeared to him at Luz at Bethel when God appeared to him. God Almighty revealed himself to him. He's got the main things in place is what I'm telling you here. He says they're mine. This is interesting and prophetic because as the nation of Israel goes forward, the tribe of Joseph is never acknowledged as the tribe of Joseph, of the 12 sons. All the other 12 sons are considered a tribe. Joseph gets subdivided into Manasseh and Ephraim. When Joshua comes in the land 500 years later and they divide the land by lot, it doesn't go to a tribe of Joseph. It goes to the subdivision tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, which is very interesting. So old fuzzy grandpa Jacob, they're mine. They're mine. They're part of the original tribes. And wouldn't you know, they actually are. When the land was divided, it's not a lot for Joseph. It's subdivided into the different, two different ones. It's interesting. Don't underestimate what elderly people are saying on their last day. There's, there's treasures, especially spirit-filled elderly people, what they might be saying on their last day. If, dog, if, if God can speak through a donkey, don't underestimate him speaking through elderly people. I don't mean that disrespectfully. I just simply mean to the one who has ears to hear, they can hear the voice of the Lord in all kinds of scenarios and circumstances. And there's things that my father-in-law says to me that I think, gosh, is that the Lord speaking to me? Kind of like people that are mentally challenged, they'll often say things that are not filtered and they don't overthink it. Like someone might put something on your heart to share with somebody and you can talk yourself out of it because like, oh, was that really the Lord? And the more you talk yourself out, the less likely you'll say it. Well, people that have certain uh, moderate or even severe handicaps that we consider handicaps, they don't, they don't think that way. They, they, won't, they won't talk themselves out of it. They'll simply speak it. And that's why it's also important to hear people speak that way as well. You just, you just don't know. But to him and her who have faith, all things are pure. And we test all things by God's word, but it's interesting that he can't identify them in the room, but he can speak the future about their lives and their descendants exactly correctly according to what would happen in history. The human experience is something, isn't it? Then he says, I thought not thought to see your face. Joseph, but now I see your grandchildren. God has shown me your offspring. Now, I like this because we know Jacob had a rough life. A lot of things went against Jacob. And he said, I had not thought to see your face. So for 20 years, he thought Joseph was dead, but he never had a body. We don't know if he had a formal memorial or anything like that. He just had the torn up coat with the goat's blood on it that his sons used to deceive him. For 20 years, he thought Joseph was dead. When he found out that he was in fact alive, you know, his breath was taken away. His, his heart skipped a beat. And then the journey in the cart all the way down to Egypt, the joy of being reconciled to this son, and now seeing these grandchildren. And here he says, I had not thought to see your face. It was so beyond him to think that Joseph was alive or he would even see his son's face ever again. But in fact, God has shown me your grandchildren, which does make us think of Ephesians 3.20 that God is able to do above and beyond all that we could think or ask for his glory in his church. And we think of the Old Testament verse quoted in the New Testament, eyes not seen nor ear heard those things that God has prepared for those who love him. And 
I've said this, that you can't outbig God. Like you think big with God, you cannot outbig God. Because as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts and ways above us. Now, it doesn't always go the way we want it to go. But his picture is so much bigger and grander than what we could think in our finite thinking. In his infinite wisdom, there's so much more working at any given time with people we love and care about from friends, foes, adversaries, and acquaintances. But I just love that in the last breaths of Jacob's life, he says, I had not even thought, I couldn't even hope enough that I would see your face again, let alone your children. God's plans are good. God is light, and him is no darkness at all. And all things truly work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. This is very encouraging. And I would hope in our final moments of life when we're dying and we're essentially in elderly care on our deathbed and we're sitting up speaking over our son Joseph and our grandchildren that we could say, I not even thought. I couldn't even hope that way. But even, be, even if I could have hoped that way, what God has done is beyond that hope. This is who God is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so glorious. The love of God is so awesome, so rich and deep and far and wide. We could never fully understand it in the current capacities that we have in time, space, and matter as fallen human beings being redeemed by the power of the Holy Spirit. This should really encourage us that when we come to what we don't know, we fall back on what we do know. And we don't know that maybe things aren't going our way or things are overwhelming or causing anxiety or stress or contention and strife, but we know that God is good and God is light and him is no darkness at all. And it's going to be a good ending. Or like it says in James chapter 5 concerning the life of Job, we know that the ending that God had intended was good. I hope in my last breaths and in your last breaths that we're testifying that God has exceeded all of our expectations of what we thought he might do in our life. Faith is the sense of things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen. Verse 12. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees and he bowed down with his face to the earth. Isn't that interesting? Joseph is bowing to his father and it was a dream where his father bowed to him with the sun, the moon, and the stars. What respect, what honor the one who could make his father bow to him, he shows the respect and the honor to his parents. Before the law was given, honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment, the promise that may be well with you, you'd live long and prosper in the land. 400 years before that commandment was given, here's Joseph, who had the dream of his father bowing to him. And his dad said, will we, will we your mother and I bow down to you? And Joseph 17 going like, I don't know, I'm just telling you the dream. But in fact, Jacob did bow down to him because he's the one that saved the entire family. And yet here he is bowing down to his father. That's humility. That's Christ. And Joseph is such a type of Christ. Bowing down to the one he's saving. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. It's beautiful. Respect. Honor. He bowed with his face to the earth, verse 12. And then in verse 13, and Joseph took them, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near to him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hand knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, 
the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, let my name be named upon them and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become people. He shall be a great. He shall also be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed him that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he said, Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you to given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorites with the Amorite with my sword and my bow. So here Verse 12 through the rest of the chapter, we get this whole motion where Joseph brings the boys, the grandsons, before his dad. His dad knows, even though he can't see, he knows which one is which in the order of blessing, and then he pronounces the blessings over him. And here's the wonderful fact that I brought out for a whole night two weeks ago, is that Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith, Jacob blessed, he, worked, he sat up and worshiped on his staff, and he blessed the sons of Joseph concerning things to come in the future. Jacob is in Hebrews 11 in the New Testament as a man of faith, joining Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac who precede him, plus Noah and Enoch and Abel who precede him in Hebrews 11. As a man of faith, not for what he did in his prime, for Enoch walked with God and he was not, not for what he did in bringing sacrifices, for Abel offered up a more excellent sacrifice than his brother Cain, by which he becomes uh, a testimony to us. Not because he built an ark and moved with godly fear for the saving of his family and his household, like Noah was in a difficult time, in a difficult generation. Not because he believed God for a son of promise like Abraham did, or like Sarah did, and considered him faithful who promised it. But because in his last breath, he sat up on his deathbed and said, this is the blessing that will come upon these boys. See the contrast? That's amazing. It's so unique. His faith's triumphant moment and legacy for all eternity in the word of God is for this passage we just read. When he sits up in his deathbed, and he's a bit fuzzy, and he can't see clearly, but he still knows which son is supposed to be blessed, and his son, grandson, and Joseph's trying to tell him, no, dad, it's just, and he, you know, like I said before, like, you're like, get, get, stop it. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. He'll be great too, but the younger will be greater. It's an awesome moment, and this very moment is interpreted for us by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament that this was the crown jewel of this man's entire life, his great moment of faith. And would to God that our great moment of faith would be when we're dying, that our greatest faith would be demonstrated in the final moments of life. It's interesting when you follow sports that often the greatest film clips of great sporting events are the last moments of how games were won. 
like the Stanford Cal game with the band comes on the field in college football and they run for the touchdown, all that through the band and all that, like it's, it's immortalized. Or Bobby Thompson's home run for the Giants, the New York Giants back in the 61, the walk-off. There's just certain things that seal the fruit that these great moments, like we rarely see something from the first quarter or the first half of anything that we think of as being that great memory. It's something great. Joe Montana rolling out in the NFC Championship game, and there it is in the, in the back of the end zone, right, against the Cowboys. I mean, I see that clip every year. We remember these great things that happen in the last moments. We love greatness. Or we say walk-off home runs or walk-off hits. We love those great moments. And they're forever immortalized in our minds with sports. Well, this is a great moment. This is a walk-off faith moment for Jacob. Yeah, I can just see you, right? I'm going to put my feet up on the bed. and Good luck in your generation. Dios te bandegas in su generation. Right? That's essentially... He's run his race. He's handing the baton of the relay race to the next generation. I love it. And I taught a whole passage on a whole night on the fact that he said at the last words concerning these children, he says in verse 15, God who has fed me all my life to this day and the angel who redeemed me from all evil. He looks back on his life and he said, God met my every need every day and God protected me from all evil every day. And as he did for him, he'll do for us. Lord, teach us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread and deliver us from evil is how Jesus taught us to pray. And he promises to do that, and he does. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Then in the present tense, it said, he says in verse 16, bless the lads that my name be upon them. And it was, and God did bless the lads in the name of Abraham and Isaac. In other words, in this moment, let them receive what's there. And then that's, so he goes past present. And then look at that last part of verse 16 and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth, the future. And they did. So again, as we've, many of you are very young here tonight. So you're like, I don't get it, but you will. And maybe you remember these words. Like I remember Pastor Chuck saying about the grandkids from 30, almost 30 years ago. You might, but we want to finish strong. And we want to be strong on the last day. And if we have faith today, it's likely that we'll have faith tomorrow. And if we have faith tomorrow, that means we had faith in our past. We have faith in our present. And as we're looking to the next tomorrow, we have faith for our future. And those become days and weeks and months and years and decades. and becomes a lifetime of faith. and becomes, as Pastor Chuck's biography, is a memoir of grace. It becomes a life of faith. And believing, thanking God for yesterday, believing him in the moment for the promises of today, and speaking blessings for the future that you won't even get to see. May they become a multitude and grow. And they did, and they are, and they still go. That's how we want to be. We want to be women and men of faith that were pronouncing thanks for the past, declaring faithfulness of the past, pronouncing blessings in the present, and speaking and believing greatness for the future, for the generation to come after us that God has for them. That's who we want to be. Chapter 49. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. So now it's not a Joseph and the grandsons. It's all the boys. The good, the bad, the ugly. Twelve boys, this good, bad, and ugly. So he calls them together. Verse 2. Gather together and hear you, sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. 
So now this, is, this deathbed scene expands. It's not just Joseph, his favorite son, with the two grandsons. Now they're all there. So you can picture this. Like, it's like a visitation. If you've ever been in a hospital when people are dying, the family come around, and sometimes there's three people, sometimes there's five. Sometimes there's a room full of people. I've been in this situation, whether it's younger people passing or middle age or infants. It varies, but you will get a room full of people, and, it's, and someone's dying, and you, and you know they're dying. And that's what's happening here. He's 147. It's not a secret. He's going to die. And so here he is in the same context or on the same timeline. Might have been the same month that we're you know, in his assisted living or whatever. And they're all there. And he speaks over these 12 sons, the future. And what he spoke is, in fact, the future. But he gathers them together. So picture for a moment what it might look like for us. Now, some of us have all adult children. Some of us have children kind of moving toward middle school or something like that. We're all in different places, but it's not hard for me to picture. I can look around here and see many of you have adult, full adult families, and you just picture it, and it is what it is. Your kids have lived long enough as adults, and they've made their decisions, and some made good decisions, some made better decisions, and some made poor decisions. You get 12 sons of Adam sharing the planet together from the same family, it's going to be a diversified portfolio. It's going to be diverse how it played out. So in this chapter, he says certain things about each one of them, and I just want to point out a couple things as we go through it for the rest of the evening. So he starts with Reuben. He starts with the sons of Leah, the first four sons he had with Leah. Reuben, verse 3, verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength. The excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Of course, Reuben had the intimate relationship with um, Bilhah, Leah's maid. or the, I'm sorry, the other maid. And it's like, whatever it was, it was bad. In fact, we can just say consequences. There's consequences. You shall not excel. Consequences. There's things that happen that we can be forgiven for and go forward from, but there's forever consequences from them. You just, it's, you just, that decision that day affects you forever. And it affects how it plays out. Verse five, Simeon and Levi, our brothers, instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger, they slew a man. And in their self-will, they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger for it is fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Guys like Simeon and Levi are helpful when you're at war and they're on your side. Kind of like Joab. He needs some bad, gnarly dudes when it's war. But usually those guys are not the best guys to have around when it's not war. And these guys, are they have anger that's out of control and they're cruel. And by the way, cruelty is like the worst, right? I mean, we just got to be, oh, we want to just be so tender and compassionate and kind toward people. Cruelty is this sort of demented, demonic thing where it's, in, it's just imposing like this evil of superiority on another human being. There's, there's just like when certain tribes conquer other tribes, when certain Indian tribes would conquer other Indian tribes, or European groups would conquer other European groups, or Latin groups would conquer other Latin groups, and the occupier and the victor 
demonstrates cruelty and savagery against them. And it might be European to African or European to Latin American, or it could be any sorts of combinations. It could be Muslims to Christians in Syria. Cruelty is just just very dark, demonic attribute that's sick. The original Simeon and the original Levi, they were cruel. In their anger, they're out of control. They could do ruthless, cruel things like wartime people do when it's take life or have your life taken from you. They, they lived like that as a disposition. They were violent men. They're dangerous men. And Jacob's just like, I don't even know what to say, but scatter them through the land because let them be in the militia for every tribe. I don't know, just their anger and their wrath and their cruelty. We do not want the legacy of our life to be anger, wrath, and cruelty and lack of self-control. In fact, the opposite of that would be uh, tenderness, humility, love, forgiveness, self-will would be humility, serving others. Self-control would be the opposite of self-will, subject to God's will, and gentle, kind. Man, cruelty is such a, a powerful word. I don't like it. Verse 8, we read on about Judah, the fourth. And, of course, Judah went from goat to hero in our story with Joseph. So we read here, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And a lion, who shall arouse him as a lion? The scepter, the ruling staff, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. This was our text last Saturday in Topical, as it refers to Jesus Christ, because Jesus is a descendant of the tribe of Judah. And we're told in Revelation chapter 5 there, as he's being worshipped, that he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And God, in Jesus' first coming, he's the lamb, the lamb of God, who lays on his life for the sheep. But in his second coming, he's the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. And even as he entered Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey as a suffering servant to die on the cross, the first time he comes from eternity beyond to time, space, and matter to Israel on the Mount of Olives on the white horse with the armies of heaven to establish the everlasting kingdom of righteousness on earth. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So this is one of those great prophecies of the Old Testament concerning Jesus Christ because he comes through the tribe of Judah, through Mary the Virgin, and he's the lion. And this, of course, what C.S. Lewis had in mind in The Lion, the Witch of the Wardrobe. He takes the imagery of Jesus as a lion and makes him Aslan in the, the children's books that uh, are famous and immortalized. The, the, the Chronicles of Narnia with Aslan the lion is... In C.S. Lewis' writing, it's Jesus, the glorious lion of the tribe of Judah. The scepter will not depart. We know in the Old Testament that as Israel got kings, David was the first king of Judah. And from that time on, about 20 kings came from David for the next three, 400 years until the captivity of Babylon in 586 B.C. And so these, all these kings came, and then the king of kings, the king of the Jews, Jesus comes from the descendants of Judah. Jesus fulfills this. And even to this day, Jesus reigns. He's a permanent one in his church. He's head of the church. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's got the final say. The whole universe is made by him and for him and held together with him. He holds it together. And the law of the Lord is true. It's perfect, converting the soul, as we're told. And 
everything that Jesus Christ speaks and does is good. It's true, virtuous, praiseworthy, and honorable. Every jot and tittle, every part of God's word is perfect and just. Again, I mentioned Saturday, I'm going through the part of Exodus where the law is given in detail. And I just read this morning in my devotion, you shall make restitution, you shall make restitution. So you make restitution. It's always about doing what's right and honorable. And that's why in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit through Paul says, hey, the entire law of God summed up in this, that you love your neighbors yourself. You do for them what you want them to do for you. So if your ox gets out and gores their ox, you, you pay for that. Accepting responsibility. It's a self-government under God's government to do the right thing. There's a whole chapter of chapter 23, restoration. And what did Jesus say? Hey, if you hate your brother, you're already guilty of committing murder. Go to your brother and make it right before you go before the judge. Make it right. The Holy Spirit through Paul the Apostle, as much as up to you, live peaceably with all men. Make it right. The law of God is true and just and noble. It can't save us, but the, the truth of it and its principles are beautiful and they're not discounted for their glory because we can't keep them. Perfection is perfect. We're not, but it doesn't take away from perfection. And Jesus is the ultimate lawgiver. And in teaching the Sermon on the Mount, he said, don't think that I came to cancel the law of God in the Old Testament. I came to fulfill it and the prophets. So everything that's beautiful in God's law in the Old Testament, the moral law, the religious law, and the civil law, it all comes to Jesus, who's the King of Kings, and he fulfills it perfectly. And we're told in the various Old Testament prophecies that when he reigns, as the waters cover the earth, so will his righteousness cover the earth. Jesus, as a king, is a perfect king. And his law is perfect. He's Shiloh, which means peace. And there is a place in Israel called Shiloh for peace. But this is the person of peace because Jesus is the prince of peace and the king of peace. And the mark of his kingdom is peace. Judah, the prophecy of Jesus. Going forward again, uh, verse 11, continue on the Judah prophecy. Verse 11 and 12 are interesting. Not quite sure what they mean. There's a lot of speculation. You can Google it on your own, Google it on your own time if you want to take a deeper look at that. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes garments in wine, his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun, verse 13, shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his borders shall adjoin Sidon. That's the Lebanese border. It's exactly where they ended up. Ishakar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that its rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. So something special about Dan there in the north there by Mount Hebron. Interestingly enough, they're the first ones that introduced idolatry to the nation of Israel. And in Revelation, the 144,000 witnesses, the 12 tribes of Israel, Dan is not one of the tribes. They're excluded from it. Verse 19, Gad, a troop, shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. So through verse 21, it's 10 of the sons describing things about their lives. And then in verse 22, we come back to the last two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, who are the sons that he had through Rachel. Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a well. 
His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong. By the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your Father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your Father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the uttermost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separated from his brothers. Well, there's a lot of spoken about Joseph compared to the other brothers, right? But look at Joseph's life. We've spent the last month and a half really looking closely at Joseph's life. We still have chapter 50 next week that summarizes his life, but we know he went through a lot of injustices. He named his children. God has caused me to forget what happened to me, so he's a forgiving person. And God has made me fruitful in the land, which is a prosperous person. And what could be better than being forgiving and prosperous? And they go together, because if you're not a forgiving person, you truly won't be a prosperous person. And so that was Joseph and all these blessings were upon him, and God blessed him. And it really did work together for good in his life for the saving of many. We'll get a lot more of this in chapter 50 next week when we wrap up the book. Then we get verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. Tribe of Benjamin, there's some bad dudes in Old Testament history, the tribe of Benjamin. These guys were warriors, and so this came to pass as well. Verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them, and he blessed each one according to his own blessing. Which brings us to almost one final thought. We talk about this regularly. God doesn't have the same plan for each person. He doesn't give everyone the same skill set for life. He doesn't give everyone the same timeline for life. Paul the Apostle said he's predetermined our boundaries, our gender, our timeline. He chose us to live now. And in this room are four generations right now in this room looking over the sanctuary. So some of us are not going to see this planet in 2031. Some of us aren't going to see it in 2041. Some of us will probably see it in 2071 if the Lord doesn't come back. That's the diversity of the ages in this sanctuary right now. God has different things for different people. In the parable of the minus, he gives one five, one two, and one one. And the faithfulness isn't based upon the quantity you started with. The faithfulness is based upon what you did with what he gave you. And God gives some people just a whole lot of stuff. And some people maybe just gives them a little bit of stuff. But he gives us everything we need to fulfill what we're created for, for his glory and for eternal riches for all eternity. And even here we see each one according to their own blessing. We need to be pursuant of the blessings that God has for us. We need to be pursuant of fulfilling the call that he has for us, and we need to be careful not to measure it by other people. And sometimes I do that. Like sometimes I think like, I don't like to do it, but sometimes I'll naturally compare myself to other ministries and I feel pretty stupid. I, I feel like, what is wrong with me? Like, I'm at a Baptist church on Saturday night. We're a Calvary affiliate, but we're not really our own church, but we kind of are. Like, like, why is it so, like, funky with, with me? You know, like, why is it, why am I the pastor that coaches, like, national surf teams? I've been asked to coach Nicaragua for the next world championships. I'm like, why does this stuff happen to me? Like, like, you know, like, you look at something like Skip Heisig, and there he is in his Instagram with his 20 leaders, and we're taking on cancer or whatever it is, and we're serving the Lord. And, you know, he pastors the largest church in Albuquerque. It's really easy to follow Skip Heisig's rabbit trail. Right? 
with Chuck, goes out, starts a church, thrives, changes the world. Strong church. Yeah, I'm like, like, so if I compare myself to Skip Heisig, it gets pretty depressing in its own way. Now, maybe Skip, Skip's surfing. He likes me as a surfer. He's like, dude, you're like a super surfer. I'm like, that's a long time ago. But you know what I'm saying? Like, we need to just receive the blessing that we have for us to be who we're meant to be. Almost every Calvary pastor thinks, oh, I'm going to be the next great glory. Actually, you're not. There's only one great glory, and that's good. Because you know great glory, that's all the planet can handle is one great glory. Just like you can only handle one of you and one of me. My point is that each one, according to his own blessing, God is personal. And as there's different blessings for the 12 sons of Israel, there's different blessings for the body of Christ. We're told in Romans 12, he gives each one a spiritual gift. Now, some he gave a lot of gifts. Some he just gives that gift. But the basis of our fulfilling our life purpose is being faithful with that gift as unto the Lord for his glory with those things. Verse 29. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, in the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron, the Hittite, as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased for the sons, from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. <laughs> what an ending. So he speaks all the blessings and says, there's something different for each one of you. And he says, and this is where you're going to lay me to rest. Where Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah and Leah are. Questions? Preguntas? Okay. That's what it says. So now there's just nothing more to say. You know, the last two years, three years, my mom was alive. Twice she took me to lunch and explained to me what to do when she dies. And she pulled out the deed for the plot in Cleveland. This is where you're going to bury me. It's where my sister and my brother are. And you're going to bury me there. I'm like, God, mom, this is kind of like a different kind of lunch, you know? Like, like, you know? It's like, no, no, this is important. You need to know. When I'm gone, you bury me with my sister and my brother at Cleveland Cemetery. Here's the deed. Okay. And I buried my mom with her brother and her sister two months ago, right there with immediate family. I did what she called me to do. They did what he called them to do. We're going to read about it next week. Final resting place. I've made clear for my final resting place what, what I want to my family. Do you know where you want your final resting place to be? Have you communicated it to your family? It'll make their life easier if you communicate it clearly this side of the dimension. Hey, will, trust, estate, power of attorney, healthcare initiative, directive, those are all really, really good things. So once again, healthcare directive, what to do when you're really sick. A trust that governs when you're gone, irrevocable, it runs itself, so the, the adult kids don't end up hating each other because it, it governs itself. A will that defines who gets the china plates and who gets the rose vase. My mom broke it down. I got the rose vase. Phil and Barbie got the, the china plates. Phil picked them up this last weekend. Hey, there's wisdom in that. Hey, I want the china plates. Mom said you get the rose vase, right? It's all there. And mom took you lunch and said you bury her in Cleveland. So you're the one that's taking the remains through TSA. Because mom entrusted it to you. So you're the one that's going to cry when you go through security. And you're the one that's got to put her in the urn because she entrusted it to you. Not to Phil and not to Barbie. 
See how it works? This is life. This is life. This is the way it is. This is the human experience, and this is the end of the journey. So we need to see the end of our journey and come backwards and say, who am I today that I'll be who I want to be on that day? Amen? Amen. Amen.